Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustino. With us this week is our old friend, and he's not old, really. Depends on how you define old. Well, I'll let you do it. Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, or NYPIRG. You can find out more at NYPIRG, N-Y-P-I-R-G dot O-R-G. In the interest of full disclosure, Blair's done commentary for WAMC, serves on WAMC's Board of Trustees. He's back again. Blair, how do you define yourself? You're not old. (laughs) Uh, uh, dinosaur in the age of mammals. That's the way I would describe it. You know, so yes, I'm in my 70th rotation of the sun. You are a long-suffering person who runs a Google group in Albany who covers the legislature. Do you like that term, Google group? It's not the term that I coined, uh, so I, I prefer civic organization, but that's public interest organization. That's anything, though. Just don't call me collect. Well, it really means good government group, so right. you should feel good about that. And, you know, you just celebrated your 50th anniversary right. with the New York Public Interest Research Group back in October. I see you had your big celebration gala at the City Winery in Manhattan. Yep. And what do I see of you on the front of your website, nyperg.org? Is that you with Jane Fonda standing there? Yes, it is. How does Jane Fonda arrive at the 50th anniversary of the gala for Nyperg? Well, we bribed the cab driver. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, she was great and was really a, a wonderful awardee. I mean, she worked the crowd, took a lot of the pictures and selfies and everything. She goes back with us a long way as she was involved in uh, some of the no-nukes rallies, uh, particularly the one sure. in Washington in May of 1979. And so she had, you know, a relationship with her. We were able to sort of connect. And she just happened to be on the East Coast doing whatever the heck she does. So it worked out. So it worked out. And so, yeah, she was the sort of the headliner for our event. So she's familiar already with the Pergs and what they do then. Well, she was familiar with us. You know, I don't know how far the scope goes. Sure. And she was great about it. I mean, she really was a trooper. You know, she's not as young as she used to be. You know, she's not in the spring chicken category. I recognized her as Jane Fonda. I'll say yeah, that. Yes, and, and she, but she was great. She gave a great speech. People loved her. We had about four or five hundred people there, so it was a, it was a big event. Looked like a beautiful place to gather. But you know, the question is, did she share with you any issues that she's passionate about in this area, like what you would? Well, she was there because of climate change issues, and she is there because she wants to raise awareness about the oil industry and what they're up to, and she wants to battle back and to support lawmakers who support a climate-focused agenda and to oppose lawmakers who toady to the uh, power of the big oil companies. Right. And in New York, they want the polluters to pay, as some other states are talking about as well. 
I am assuming Nyberg agrees with that position. A lot of what we talked about in one of our priorities is right now, New Yorkers, Americans, the world, are picking up the tabs of climate costs and damages because of the already climate catastrophe has started. Some of us may remember the Canadian wildfires that burned from coast sure. to coast uh, and turned New York City's air orange. And Upstate New York as well. We yeah, were enveloped up, in it as well. It was awful everywhere. But I never saw a picture of orange air before. And Me that either. Was, that was pretty intense. And so, you know, sea levels are already rising, uh, glaciers are already melting, heat is becoming more intense, storms are more catastrophic, and there's a cost to that. There's a sort of environmental cost and public health cost, but there's also a financial cost. And right now, in New York, Governor Hochul's design is to make New Yorkers pay. She's already spent $2.7 billion, our calculation in terms of uh, cost for climate damages and resiliency projects. This includes the Bond Act, I assume? Uh, well, the $2.7 billion is how much has gone out the door. Okay. Uh, the Bond Act uh, sets aside $4.2 billion over the next 30 years, uh, and the estimates are by the year 2050, unless something's done, uh, New York is going to pay $10 billion per year for climate damages. And so, you know, right now, New Yorkers are paying that out of their own pockets, and we think, and Jane Fonda agreed, uh, that the oil companies should be on the hook because they're responsible. It was they who knew about this 40 years ago and then lied about it. And so New Yorkers are picking up the tab, so we think the oil companies should kick in, both in New York, the country, and the world. We're speaking with Blair Horner, executive director of NYPIRG on the Capital Connection. Infrastructure and transportation. Just take that one example we've just seen with Amtrak. You had three mm -hmm. separate things. You had a warehouse in Albany that was crumbling that stopped at one time. You had a private homeowner's land that after some heavy rains gave way and stopped at a second time. The latest was a private building in Manhattan where the pieces of the building are crumbling That's down right. on the tracks. Nothing tells me more than we need infrastructure repair than something like that with a major transportation system. I mean, when you look at the size of some of these projects, I mean, it's so unbelievably large that it's hard to wrap your head around it. But the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says it's going to cost $52 billion just to protect New York City Harbor. Uh, the estimates are that it's going to cost $100 billion to upgrade New York City's sewer systems to deal with mm. the more intense storms. Estimates are on Long Island at $75 to $100 billion to protect Long Island. And there's another $55 billion to protect outside of New York City for climate damages. Hudson River is going to rise. The Great Lakes are going to rise. You have to make roadways more climate protective. All of that stuff, it's just huge amounts of money. It comes down to cost. I mean, if you have a affluent society and the costs are sort of manageable over time, you can ask the public to pick up the tab. And that's what most states do. That's what New York is doing right now. But as the costs go up, you're going to end up not spending money on things like higher education or health care or public safety because you're going to have to make the roads passable. You have to have bridges that cover whatever they're covering, rivers or canyons. You have to have... The trains run on time. You have to have the trains run on time. All that costs money. It's going to cost enormous bucks. And we're hoping this year Governor Hochul changes her tune and decides to say, yeah, let's make the oil companies kick in on this because it's their fault. I don't know about you, but it seems like the amount of things that we need to do, not only with climate change, with all the other problems we have, whether it's in areas of education, healthcare, guns, we need a new deal type of funding to deal with all of this. And that if you're going to pick and choose which problem well, to handle, what, what are we really accomplishing? Well, you know, when you think about it, you think about also the massive debts that the country yeah. is rolling up. Ultimately, somebody has to pay for all that. Interest rates are going up, so it's harder for the feds to borrow to sort of cover these things. 
also, I mean, you know, remember after World War II, the nation was uh, had a lot of debts because we had fought a ferocious war that cost a lot of money. And so the tax code changed. So the tax rates went up way up over 70 percent for the highest income earners in the United States. And that system was more or less in place until 1980. I mean, Social Security is supposed to run out of money in 2034. Um, And so that all of that stuff, someone has to pay. And uh, policymakers at the national and state level uh, are seemingly unwilling uh, to tackle that. They're much more willing to sort of pretend that they can cut uh, programs for the poor and that that's the answer. That's the solution. And that isn't a solution that just tortures people uh, that need help. And so ultimately, we're going to have to make Elon Musk and people like him uh, pay more dough and oil companies to pay more dough. Right now, they're making money hand over fist because of the war in Ukraine and the Middle East. We estimated um, from the period January 21st to the middle of this year, the biggest oil companies raked in three quarters of a trillion dollars in profits, not revenues, in profits. So let's use that money. They're making it hand over fist. Let's use that money to help pay for infrastructure projects in the United States, New York, and the world. And should the other polluters pay as well? Now, we've seen PFAS chemicals end up in water systems, PFOA. We now have environmental advocate groups calling for more dredging of PCBs from the Hudson River because it doesn't seem to have worked out, at least in the latest survey from their organizations, to have done as good a job as they predicted. Then you have, as you said, sewage leaks, other things we have to deal with with water. I just heard Catskill Mountain Keeper is fighting a proposed methane, uh, pulling methane out of the ground and a hydrofacking uh, type of proposal. So, you know, here is there's always the pollution, but then where's the where's the uh, enforcement and who's going to pay? Yeah, I mean, the the feds and the state do have a program called Superfund, uh, which makes the polluters puts the polluters on the hook for basically ground contamination. So that's where GE's on the hook for the Hudson River. Uh, that's where um, you know various companies will be that dumped you know Teflon-related PFAS chemicals into the ground ends up in drinking water. That's where they're on the hook. So it's up to government, of course, to enforce that, and that's where the that's where the rubber sort of hits the road on that side of the ledger. But there is no similar program for climate damages, and that's what we're hoping to get in New York. Uh, to go back to the sort of the, the the new idea about fracking, the idea is to inject carbon dioxide into the ground to free up methane to somehow be able to burn in the atmosphere uh, while we're having a climate catastrophe. Uh, What could go wrong, right? So it seems like it's the wrong approach. If you want to spend money on generating power in New York, the the nation or the world, it should be toward technologies that do not rely on fossil fuels. You have to keep that stuff in the ground. Is it greed against science? (laughs) Well, it's greed, political corruption against science. Uh, There are... Uh, there are people in that are in high places in Washington that simply don't believe that climate change is real, that it's a hoax. Uh, there are candidates running for a Republican nomination for president that say the climate change agenda is a hoax. None of that stuff is true. The science, of course, the whole world tells you the same thing. Let the me be Alan Chartok for a minute. If you oh. put a lie detector on their arm, Blair, <laughs> would they believe it? They wouldn't do it. <laughs> they wouldn't do it. They'd be smart enough to know not to take the lie detector test. Uh, but the the fossil fuel industry funds one political party in America. 
Uh, and uh, they are doing the same kinds of things all around the world. The whole idea is to sort of erode public support for a green agenda or a green economy and to keep saying that it's not affordable. And you hear that being mouthed all the time in New York, um, that it's not affordable. And they just whistle past the graveyard of, well, what are the costs of not doing anything? And they completely avoid the fact that there could be jobs in this area. That's right. Well, they, you know, again, they cook the nut. They, they, like, like they're cooking the planet, they cook the books. Well, then we're back to ethics, aren't we? Now, we just had on our media project program on WAMC a Pulitzer Prize winner. Her name is Anna Wolf, and she studies poverty in Mississippi. And, of course, Mississippi is known as the worst state in how it treats the poor and the children. And she discovered, oh, my goodness, there was corruption in the Capitol and that the former governor alleged— we know he ran the fund, but is alleged to have helped his friends with the money, the welfare money, right? And it even involved Brett Favre, the football player, right. who got money for a volleyball stadium at his alma mater for his daughter. Yeah, so, right. As a Packer fan, I right. mourned that. You know the inside of all this stuff in New York, Blair, and you know that there are ways that things happen accidentally on purpose. <laughs> well, a lot of the political corruption you see in America stems from U.S. Supreme Court, court decisions that have basically equated uh, campaign spending with free speech and that have eroded the ability of uh, federal prosecutors to go after cases of corruption. Theft of honest services. That's right. Well, the idea has been stolen uh, <laughs> by the right. U.S. Supreme Court. That's right. Uh, the theft of honest services statute has been trimmed back to almost nothing. And so that, but what is that, what message is that? If unfettered money and political speech is okay and prosecutors are not really able to sort of go after quid pro quo, that just unleashes corruption and raises the risk <clears throat> of corruption across the board. Um, and, you know, laws have to, I mean, we're a society of laws. You have to have better laws and you have to have better enforcement. The Mississippi case, unfortunately, is maybe an, an example of uh, the political corruption on steroids, but it is still an example that you see far too often across America. Why did the Supreme Court vote that way? They have an ideological bent. To what side? They have an ideological bent, basically, that says that rich people and the powerful are to be free to do whatever they want. Okay, so that would then apply to polluters and everything else, right? Well, you know, again, where the lines get drawn is not always a slam dunk with the U.S. Supreme Court in terms of what they're ultimately going to do. But in terms of this sort of free speech argument, which has trimmed the ability of government to regulate massive campaign contributions and unfettered spending, coupled now with the inability of federal prosecutors to go after violations of uh, federal law, you're left with really state laws to enforce things. And they are, as you know, as you probably can guess, weaker in some states, stronger in others, and usually not enough. You literally had New York State jostling with the Supreme Court over the permit to carry a gun. Concealed carry law is what it was. So, yeah, this is right here in front of us. Well, that's if we're paying attention. Is that a problem, Blair? We're paying attention. Wait a minute. We're paying attention. Wait a a minute, Blair. We just had (laughs) off. Wait a minute, Blair Horner of Nyperg on the Capitol Connection this week. We just had elections, off-year elections, yes. But why does it have to be a presidential year? Why do we have to have something exciting? 
Why don't more people vote, Larry? Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, part of it is people don't pay as close attention because they're busy dealing with their lives. Nonsense. And part of it is the system is designed so that people don't know what's going on, and it makes it hard for people to participate. So for new voters, uh, New York has done a pretty good job in recent years of uh, demolishing the obstacles that were in place. But still, New York's turnout is below the national average. So part of that is the system and part of it is, you know, incumbents win so frequently that people just feel like the system is rigged and they, their vote doesn't matter. But we do know that elections matter because there's a handful of House Republicans from New York that got elected in squeakers and they provide the margin for why the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his name is Williams, or instead of Jeffries. So votes do matter, and they do make a big difference. Yeah, it shaped the Supreme Court differently. That's I mean, exactly right. And people don't follow those dots. And you're right, I don't think they pay close attention. But really, we need to. If we're going to be you know, citizens, and I think what's happened is sort of a turning away from our institutions, whether it's politics, education, health care, science, you know, the deep state. We seem to be cynical about all of it. And, right. and we're willing to just say we, we don't want to trust any of it. So, well, I mean, how do we survive as a society? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, uh, we don't want to go down a too depressing rabbit hole, David. I understand. We'll, we'll get, we'll get positive actually, in a minute. But it does matter, just to go back. I mean, there's a difference in Ukraine aid because of a handful of squeaker elections in New York. There is a difference um, in terms of um, whether or not there are restrictions that are allowed by the U.S. Supreme Court on, uh, you know, assault-style weapons. There is a difference in terms of policy. Now, however you li are the listeners of this show view those issues, those decisions are made by a relatively small number of voters in a relatively small number of congressional districts in New York. Yeah. That is the difference in terms of public policy at the national level right now. In many ways, abortion's on the ballot for coming elections as well. There'll be a constitutional amendment question in New York uh, related to equal rights in 2024. Well, and so, you know, one of the areas that we always struggle with in voting is young people. But one of the good things, see, here, I'm getting positive here, Blair, for a minute, <laughs> is that New York passed a law that put polling places yes. on college campuses. Now, I, you know, do the informal survey with my students, you know, about are you registered? And we still get some, ah, professor, I'm going to, but I'm hearing anecdotally, at least, that more students are voting if you put the voting booth closer to them. Well, you know, of course, making it easier to vote is a better way to make sure that people vote than making it harder for people to vote, right? So that sort of no, no, it's a face, privilege, Blair. You know, it's that, a privilege. You know, that's to actually vote. in New York State, it's a constitutional right. Ah. Uh, and so I just wanted to get the other side. That's all right. That's all right. But if you don't make it easy for people to register and therefore benefit to be able to vote on campus, so for example, if you're at an upstate school and let's say you went to high school on Long Island and you came upstate. The normal, easiest way to register to vote is through the Department of Motor Vehicles. But they populate your voter registration form with the address from Long Island. Yep. And so if you're upstate and you're not paying attention because it's the first time you ever chose to vote and you're registered to vote, but it's for Long Island, but you're living in Hamilton, New York, you may not know that you need an absentee ballot. You may think because there's a polling place on campus that you can just vote there, but you would be wrong. So there needs to be more education of new voters to understand how the process works so they can make a choice. I mean, they live eight months in Hamilton, in our hypothetical example. They're counted, students are counted as living there for redistricting purposes. They pay taxes in terms of sales tax. If they choose to want to say they want to register to vote there, then they should be allowed to do that. 
Um, just like if you're a senior citizen and you're living and you have a second home in Florida, you can control where you register to vote. You can't vote both, but you can register in one of them. I want to go back to ethics reform because I missed the obvious question, which is you've recently written about 2024 and what could be coming in that area. What do you expect on ethics reform? You know, I have my doubts that any real progress will ever be made, but will we get a unbiased arbiter in all this? Yeah, I mean, their efforts to claw back what they describe as his ill-gotten gains from the $5 million book deal. And he's challenging that by saying that the way that they're organized, the ethics agencies organized under the law, is unconstitutional. If the court rules in his favor, that blows up the ethics agency, and then you have a much larger conversation that would occur to figure out how do you deal with the ramifications of that. But absent that, I think that most of whatever ethics issues will emerge will be in response to what the state ethics agency advances or issues around how the state's new campaign finance voluntary system of public financing is playing out going into its first election cycle. I think that's where the rubber will hit the road in that area in terms of what ethics reforms would look like. More small bore unless the courts blow up the ethics agency. How much is the fact that legislators in New York are part-time impact the potential for maybe not so honest services? Well, they have changed the system a bit when they gave themselves these massive raises. They are now making, I think it's around $140,000 for what they say is a part-time job. And there's no meaningful restrictions on outside income currently, although there are some that do go into effect starting in 2025. So the elected class of 2024, whatever they do, there will be some restrictions in terms of their ability to have uh, outside income. What will they be, Blair, do you know? Well, it's limited to a certain amount of money. I believe it's 25% of the legislative salary. So they can work as a professor at SUNY Albany as an adjunct. Easily below the threshold there. And teach an adjunct class (laughs) or two. But they wouldn't be able to really be a partner in a law firm. Got it. uh, Or be dealing with working in a hedge fund or something like that. Which is where some of these issues are. That's exactly right. right. And I mean, even the very powerful speaker, Sheldon Silver, found that out. That's right. Well, that's what tripped him up uh, was outside income in terms of a law firm that nobody knew he was involved in. And so that was what led to the corruption, led to him dying in prison, uh, which led to the changes that occurred when they tied the pay increases to limits on outside income. Now, this court case is challenging that, so who knows, things could change, but that's sort of the trajectory they're on unless somebody intervenes. As you know, I am an adjunct. I will make that clear at the university at all. I threw that in there for you. Yeah, David. yeah, yeah. I just but wanted to put you on equal you, footing with the $140,000 state legislature. Absolutely. I don't make nearly that in my <laughs> adjunct position, nor do I do it for the money at all. But higher education is an interesting area right now. I mean, you've got certain things that have converged. You had the pandemic, which affected enrollment in many cases because of people going remote and lives changing, and they're trying to make up for that. You've got some campuses, some small campuses, and having to either close or readjust to their new size. And then you have AI, this new technology that's coming into higher education that can be used and be helpful, many say. And as a professor, I worry it'll be used to cheat. Right. But it's really changing how we gather and understand information. It's changing that whole ecosystem. And I'm wondering, you know, you, you're heavy on the college campuses how you're seeing things there in the future. In a sense, you're talking about two different kinds of things. One is sort of yes. what the futuristic side of it, you know, chat GPT and other AI instruments to be used both to help with research, but also to game the system. Well, let's just put that aside for the moment. 
In terms of the financial situation, I mean, a lot of these, particularly the smaller liberal arts public colleges and, and independent colleges in upstate New York, they're the only game in town when it comes to jobs and uh, economic activity. And a lot of them are teetering on the brink. So on the public side, what has happened, and it may be bearing fruit, is both the state university and the city university system have basically allowed people to apply without paying a fee. And that has boosted applications. And SUNY described, I mean, the, the numbers wasn't so clear to me, but described recently that there's been a big boost in applications and enrollment in SUNY. And a lot of what happens at public colleges is driven by who, actually, how many people actually go. Now, the community colleges were in very bad shape. The four-year publics at SUNY were in very bad shape going into the pandemic. The pandemic just made it worse. City University was really a more pandemic-specific problem. So that all of that plays out. We'll see if they've turned the corner on that. The big thing is the 50th anniversary of the state's tuition assistance program is in 2024, the assembly is going to be holding hearings on that the last week in November. And so the TAP program could become the vehicle to make college more affordable and also then boost enrollment. I just wonder with the ability to do things remote these days, if eventually, you know, you look at a college campus, part of what a president does is have new construction, build new buildings. And are we going to be moving away from that model with more people able to learn wherever they are? And then how does that model help you survive financially when you rely a big chunk of your money comes from housing on campus and a meal mm -hmm. program and all that kind of stuff? Pre-pandemic, I think everyone would have just agreed with what you said. But I think what has happened when we've seen the performance of K-12 education in a remote setting, I don't think it's so clear right now that the online equivalent is always the same. Now, again, you they say we've lost decades. That's right. That's right. Now, it may be different with adults. And, you know, the college students are generally young adults and their life experience is sort of looking at their phone all day. So I think there'll be some sort of mix that comes out of it. But the idea that the clear eventual outcome is that everyone's learning in sort of an online setting, I don't think that's so clear. And I think part of the collegiate experience, particularly for young adults, is learning the ways of the world. And you can't just do that online. And so colleges do offer extracurricular interactive experiences that you wouldn't get if you were sort of in your cocoon. Well, and I think we're human beings, which means we're social beings. Right. And for most of us, uh, and we're seeing this reflected on college campuses, is a created a mental health crisis. And, you know, the idea of not being face to face with someone is something I think bothered a lot of young people. They wanted to be out interacting with one another. Yeah, well, the mental health issues are real. But in the backdrop of a you know worldwide pandemic that shut down the planet for a year and the obvious problems as a result of climate change, you put a lot of that stuff together. And, and if you're a young person, uh, the future can look grim, but that doesn't mean you have to stay grim. It's important to fight for changes because if you effectively fight for changes, we may be able to avert the worst of climate change and make a better world as compared to one that is sort of a dystopian future. He is Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, or NYPIRG. You can find out more at NYPIRG, N-Y-P-I-R-G dot O-R-G. Blair, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about the Capital Connection. And I know because I know I'll ask you and I know you'll say yes, that you'll come back again some other time. Your wish is my command. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustina. Support for The Capital Connection comes from 
New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.